welcome to the October 2008 podcast of Ordinary Means. Uh, I'm Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Here with Hi, Matt Sean. Bowling. There you are. I knew, I knew you were here, I just couldn't see you. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult from Pennsylvania to Seattle. It's a yes, long look. It is a, it's a long look. I stuck my head out the window for just a moment there, and it, it didn't help. Well, hey, uh, welcome back this month to the podcast. Uh, thank you to our faithful three listeners. Uh, you you are the people who, who keep us going, and uh, we, we certainly hope that this is a blessing to you. As a couple of pastors here sit around and talk about uh, the ordinary means of grace, talk about how the Lord's working, uh, how the Lord works in our lives, uh, and we're guaranteed of that. Uh, well, this, uh, this month we're going to do something um, we do a couple times a year, and that is question and answer. A lot of you post your questions on the blog or shoot us emails, and I wanted to, uh, to we wanted to take the opportunity to answer some of those questions. Uh, we do read them. Uh, oftentimes we will respond to them on the blog, uh, but sometimes we uh, don't get around to doing that, and that's what this podcast is for. Um, so I think we're just going to get right into this. Is that okay with you, Matt? Sounds like it. Let's go for Okay. Well, first first question we have, this is a little older question, came from a podcast we did back in, uh, I think we did this in January of this year on what does an ordinary means ministry look like? Uh, a fellow by the name of Scott left us, uh, Scott from Texas, he signed it. Scott from Texas uh, wrote this question. He said, I really like this month's podcast. Uh, as I thought, it had some great insight into what constitutes an ordinary means congregation. Hey, thank you, sc- thank you, Scott. Um, you know, we always like um, approval. Um, we really strokes. We live for strokes here at uh, the Ordinary Means <laughs> Podcast. Um, what my question for y'all is, he says, obviously Scott from Texas, uh, related to this topic is how a layman in a more broadly evangelical congregation can encourage his church to move in an ordinary means slash old school Presbyterian direction? It's a great question, Scott from Texas. And um, I think I think we've got an answer to that. It's I, we at least I think we've got principles you can apply to that situation. Uh, Matt, you want to you want to go ahead? Yeah. Um, I think a, a couple of things. One of the ways, and this may sound odd, um, but I think it's one of the ways that you can encourage it, is to talk to your pastor about how much you grow through his preaching. Um, one of the things that pastors uh, are challenged by the contemporary sort of evangelical context in America is on this belief that God can use something so outmoded, something so outdated, something so monological um, as... Uh, as preaching in the radical transformation of unbelievers and believers. But when you tell your pastor, God is really changing my life through your preaching. He's using you. To As opposed me. to God is changing my life through the video you showed last week. Um, yes, that. Um, and I think also it, it gives confidence that um, keeping the word central in the ministry of the church Yes, um, is is absolutely crucial, so that um, fellowship is an important aspect uh, of a church's ministry. Um, but having fellowship that's over and around the word with prayer, 
Um, I think that by simply affirming the ways in which you find that you're growing, um, you're going to it, it sort of very um, indirectly move the church in an ordinary means direction. Because the calls that are made to pastors today by advertisements and by conferences and things like that is, try this. Mm -hmm. And um, as we've said many times on here, um, God's got some means that he intends to use. And when we use those means with prayer and we depend upon him uh, quite frequently, um, God uses those means in his sovereign plans for people. Um, But when we don't use his means, um, we can't expect that he would use those because they don't honor him. They're not what he wants to work through. There's some very, very real temptations out there for pastors because um, they are uh, day in, day out sticking sticking with the, the same congregation and they, they look at that congregation and, and oftentimes they don't see growth. Um, con- uh, people in their congregation are not coming to them and saying, uh, this is. I, I was really, you know, changed in this way. Like like Matt said, um, part of that is simply because our culture today is a very private culture. Um, hmm. We can we can live in a neighborhood with houses, you know, with zero lot lines, where you know the the house next to us uh, overlaps their roof overlaps our roof, and and still not know those people. We can live in condominium complexes where we share a wall with somebody and live there for six, seven, eight years never knowing the person living on the other side of the wall. Um, I know we had an experience, my wife and I um, owned a condo for a while and uh, our bedrooms, our bedroom was uh, shared the wall with the bedroom in the condo next to our bedroom and um, uh, the condo next to us and uh, the the person next to us snored. <laughs> and, and late at night, when it was real quiet, we could hear snoring from the condo next to us. And um, uh, we, you know, we got to know we got to know the person next to us. And and it was it was interesting because later they they bought a different bed. We saw the parts laid out outside of their house, and they bought a different bed, and they never snored after that. So that, that, that was a good experience. All that to say. <laughs> All that to say, we are a very private culture. We can we can live yeah. right next to somebody and not get to know them. It's not going to be natural for people today to come up to a pastor and say, hey, I'm being changed by your preaching. And so there are very real temptations. Pastors are getting marketing left and right that is saying, uh, hey, um, if you do this, it worked for this church. It'll work for your church. You know, right. in, in 40 days, you can increase your congregation 40%. And, and that is um, a very real temptation. And it's a, to many pastors, it seems like the next logical step. He's looking at his ministry. He's saying, what I'm doing isn't working. Let me try something else. And But inevitably, and, and Matt, you and I have seen this in some of the presbyteries we've been in, where... You've got a, a lot of depressed um, pastors in your pa- presbytery right. because they have tried gimmick after gimmick after gimmick, fad after fad after fad, and it, they just don't work. And what God says is, I want you to use my ordinary means. What God doesn't say is that I'm going to increase 
your congregation by 50 percent in fifty days, or you know, a hundred percent in a hundred days. He doesn't. God doesn't make those kinds of promises. Sometimes we go all through life and never see ministers go through life and never see uh, the benefits of their ministry, the blessings of their mm-hmm. ministry, and we need to remember that and be encouraged that God works through the means that He declared even if we're not seeing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now, that said, Matt, I, I could not agree more with your your first principle um, in terms of encouraging your pastor. You and I didn't compare notes before this, but that is my first principle that I've got here in my notes. Uh, very first thing I have here is develop a good, respecting, respectful relationship with your pastor. You know, the Bible says, do not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Um, apply that in this situation. Uh, the last thing your pastor needs is somebody attacking them. Mm. A- and I mm-hmm. say that as somebody who has attacked his pastors. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm coming to this as the guilty party. Um, I'm right. co- and, and I'm a pastor, so I've been attacked, but I've also been the one that has attacked. This is very, very common for young seminarians. Um, they, get, they get through a couple classes, and they're excited about what they're understanding about the Scripture, and they get into a church, and they're convinced they know how to fix every problem in the church. And oftentimes they are coming up against a man who has been uh, a pastor longer than they've been alive. And, uh, and they're coming up against him as an adversary. And I'm just, I just, as an opening warning, don't do that. <laughs> don't come uh, as an adversary right. Uh, against your pastor. Develop a respectful relationship with him. I guarantee you he has a reason for why he's doing everything he's doing. And I'll guarantee you that even some of those fads that he's following have some good scriptural basis to to some of the things that they're teaching. And even some of those fads can be used towards an ordinary means ministry. So I would say come in with a positive outlook. Come in saying, hey, Pastor, I'm on your side, and I want to help you, and I want to be—I uh, want to be an encouragement to you. And start there. That's great, absolutely great advice. I think the other thing um, that could be done that would not be in, in opposition um, of the pastor or the ministry of the church uh, is really just asking questions. Um, why, why don't we pray more in this church? Isn't our hope in the Lord that he'll change people? You know, because it, 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 when you put things that simply, um, and you're willing to put some feet on that, like be the organizer of a prayer meeting or something like that, um, or participate regularly in a prayer meeting, you again bring an encouragement to the leadership to move in a certain direction, but you do it without being accusatory. Um, and you do it uh, with something that people, I, I, I can't think of a single person that I've met in the Christian realm um, in 15 years of ministry that has said, oh, we should pray less. <laughs> I've never met somebody like that. And so just sort of um, saying, do we do we need to do more activities or, or do we need to, or maybe we should pray more, um, it, it can kind of push things in a, in a good direction. 
Um, that's certainly something that I do as a pastor wanting to develop an ordinary means congregation is to constantly be pushing towards, um, you know, if we haven't prayed about something, we're basically independent and we think we can get it done without God. Mm. And uh, and he's very happy to step back and say, okay, see what you can do by yourself. Um, and so I think that sometimes making gentle suggestions um, towards something that would orient us uh, to the ordinary means um, is is helpful. Certainly, and I, I think I would add to that what um, you and I, Matt, were talking about before uh, before we turned on the microphones is that many pastors are also thrilled um, if somebody comes to them and they say, hey, you know, I, I really, I would love if, if our church had a, pr- had a regular weekly prayer meeting and, and then said these words, and I will organize it. Yes. <laughs> um, we would l- love as pastors to see more of our congregation getting involved. And if, you're, if you've got a positive relationship with your pastor, um, if he understands your desire to be uh, maybe not an elder, but just to be a leader among the congregation in these sorts of things, to be a prayer warrior, um, you know that's a that's a fatty term, not not fatty as in gaining weight, but a, you know that's a term that's often associated with um, some of these little programs to get your church kicked off on prayer, become a prayer warrior. Um, but at the same time. You know, when your pastor hears, here's a man who wants to be a prayer warrior, or here's a woman who wants to be a prayer warrior in my church, amen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, he, they're going to be all over that. So, um, you know, unless you have an extremely type A pastor who has to do everything, um, you know, you're, you're going to have a pastor, any other pastor besides him is going to be, um, uh, be going to be willing to uh, let you run with, run with it there. Absolutely. Um, many many of the thoughts that that let me just tag on that. Yeah, uh, we yeah. on to the next one, Sean. I think that that just to highlight Sean's point, many of the ideas that you might propose to your pastor have to be fit through not just the sort of the biblical grid and sort of the um, what do we think God's called us to do here sort of grid, um, but also is it possible for me with all the other responsibilities that I have of which many people in the congregation have no idea how many different responsibilities the pastor's got, how he uses his time, etc. Um, is this logistically possible for me to pull off? And so when a pastor gives you a, a cold response to an idea, it may not necessarily be that he doesn't think it's biblical. He just doesn't know how to fit it in. He doesn't know. Sometimes it's just that he doesn't know how logistically you can make this possible. Or it may be that he goes... Yeah, but not now. Uh, that's going to take like six months of work to bring that about, but you're dead on. That's exactly what we need to do, but it's going to take six months to get there. Yeah. Or a year to get there because of the fact of trying to lead the leadership in that kind of direction. Well, th- that point, he's got to lead the leadership, and this isn't just a matter of you coming to your pastor and saying, we need to do this, and you know, next week you're doing it. Uh, maybe in a small church you might be able to do something closer to that, but uh, the, he's also got to talk with the uh, with the elders. Uh, it really, at least in a Presbyterian situation, um, while the pastor is uh, a leader of the elders, he is a, he's an equal with the elders, and all right. of those men have to agree. 
Now, the wonderful thing about an ordinary means ministry is who's who's going to argue with, I think we should pray more, I think we should preach more, and I think we should have the sacraments more. Um, you know, I, who's going to argue with that? And, uh, you're right, in one sense, Sean. But in another sense, um, people also vote by their participation. True. So um, you can have a non-opposition from a leadership group to a particular idea, but at the same time, a lack of participation by that same leadership in the thing. And that's as good as killing it. Because if you can't get the leadership there, then nobody else is going to view it as a priority. Very, very true. Very, very true. You know, one... um uh, that might not have answered all of your questions, Scott. It, I, hopefully it gave you some direction, some encouragement uh, to encourage your church in that direction. Um, you know, in terms of your church going old school Presbyterian, you know, if you're not going to a Presbyterian church, you're probably not going to get old school Presbyterian in your lifetime. Um, most Presbyterian churches are not going to see old school Presbyterian in their lifetime. But uh, here's a... Uh, a slightly tongue-in-cheek idea, but I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. Go to the first part of Revelation. Um, read through the letters, Jesus's letters to the churches, and just praise God uh, for your church. Mm. Praise God that you have a church that has not yet lost its lampstand. Mm. Um, you know, if you know, if you're in a church that's about to lose its lampstand, if you're in one of these uh, liberal churches that has has just thrown out uh, any belief in the authority of Scripture, uh, that's a completely different question than what Scott is asking. Uh, the right. question we're dealing with here is just simply: What if I go to a you know a church that loves the Bible and and I've got a good pastor and I I'm I've, I'm enjoying being here? But I really want to see more emphasis on the word, the sacraments, and prayer. What do I do? And um, and I think in that case, you just you just do some of the things that we've suggested. What I would love to see, Matt, is if people would uh, respond on the blog and just say, "Hey, you know, here's what I've been doing," or "Here's here's what I would suggest." Um, that would be a oh, great, be great. Yeah, that'd be a great way to use that blog as a resource. Um, now, I mean, there's only three of you listening, but it could be some good interaction nonetheless. Um, let's right. move on. Let's move on to the next question. The next question comes from uh, Timothy M. Uh, Timothy M. says this. He says, um, uh, looks like he listened to the podcast on Baptists and Presbyterians together. And uh, he said, I just, hi, I've just recently finished listening to the newest podcast uh, and I had one question I kept coming back to, and that was what a true church consisted of. Uh, and then in in the course of his uh, his note here, he says what that is, uh, with which we fully agree. He says, the Scots Confession and the three forms prescribe the true church uh, as one that rightly administers the sacraments, uh, as well as preaches the word and the gospel, and has church discipline. Uh, while Baptists may be brethren in Christ, how can they have a true church if they do not administer baptism to the children of believers? Also, how can they even claim the word reformed if they do not adhere to what the men who formerly, uh, I'm sorry, formally and ecclesiastically set forth 
as Reformed doctrine in the Confessions of Faith. In other words, I guess he's saying if they don't agree with what was originally put in the Confessions, how can they claim to be Reformed? He says it's one thing to be a confessional Baptist, but another to say one is a Reformed Baptist. They do not adhere to the confessions of the Reformers, nor to their covenant theology, nor to their sacramental and liturgical understanding of the Lord's service. And he says, I say this as a former Reformed Baptist. And then he says, thanks, I was just curious to know what you guys thought. Um, It's a great question, it really is. Um, And every denomination has to ask this question about the other denominations, and that is, if if we're a true church, are they a true, true church? And um, I think the answer's got to come back to uh, really the broadness, and this is, um, maybe I'm going to get in trouble for saying that, but the broadness of those three points, the right administration of the word sacraments and prayer. Right. Uh, th- that is a broad statement. That is a statement that includes... Uh, a number of different churches, um, but specifically, and I think intentionally so. Yeah. Oh, yes, very much intentionally so. The the Westminster Confession, as you'll remember, had all of the groups that uh, Timothy that you mentioned. All of those groups were part of um, the writing of the Westminster Confession and of many of the other confessional documents. Uh, the goal of the confessions was uh, right doctrine and, and unity around that doctrine. Um, the goal was to divide from the heretics, not to divide from the from uh, others that were part of the true church. Um, nevertheless, uh, Baptists and Presbyterians are always going to be arguing about this. Um, the the Baptists, uh, particularly the Reformed Baptists, they're going to say, um, you know, we are uh, we are Reformed. <laughs> they're going to they're going to argue that, and they're going to argue. That they agree with, um, you know, everything in the shorter catechism, except for that one half a question, you know, that talks about the pedo baptism. Children of believers, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and and I think maybe the way you we could look at this to be to be fair uh, would be to say that Reformed Baptists see their position as an improvement on the Reformation. Uh, I think they would come to it, they would come to this debate, they would say, you know what, the whole medieval church uh, was baptizing infants, and um, it was just natural for the church to continue doing that through the Reformation, Uh, but you know, the Reformation said we're to always be reforming, and we Baptists see ourselves as having really a a new covenant position. Um, I I think that's how they, they would come to this and really believe that they are Reformed. Uh, we would come to it and say, yeah, well... If, there are, go, go if ahead. there are Reformed Baptists who listen to us regularly and they would comment back on the blog to see if that was an accurate reflection, we'd appreciate that too. Yeah, that would that would be helpful. Um, another thing I think we can say, uh, and again, I'm going to get in trouble for um, speaking kindly of the Baptists, but uh, it's not that they don't baptize their children. They just wait longer than we do. <laughs> And um, it's not that they're not, they don't care about uh, their child's conversion um, mm-hmm. or care about raising their children in the faith. Uh, in fact, many times, because of their theological position, they're much more concerned about their child's conversion. Oh, oh yes. I see uh, many more um, 
Baptists and Presbyterians uh, who are who are actively engaged uh, with their children. So often, what I see in uh, real covenantal circles is almost a um, uh, an assumption that my children is is a believer or my children is child is part of the church because they've been baptized, and uh, it, it's almost. Uh, I, I, I'm debating how to put this, but it's it's almost as if the you know, the the evangelical church has the problem of parents relying on the Sunday school to raise their children in the faith. There's not a high view in the evangelical church of family worship, um, but in the Presbyterian church, there is a high, while there's a high view of family worship. Uh, there's not so much a high view of, you know, of challenging our children in the faith. Um, mm-hmm. I, I used the illustration recently. Uh, we have an example in Scripture where Jesus is talking to an adult child of believers, uh, where Jesus is talking to someone who grew up in the church, uh, was born in the church, was circumcised, because it's a Jew, was circumcised in the church, and now Jesus is talking to that man as an adult. And the one thing that Jesus wants to stress in John 3 with Nicodemus is conversion. You must be born again. And it seems to me that tells should tell both the Baptist and the Presbyterian something about the way we talk to our kids. Now, I'm going to put up some caveats here. I, I'm not saying that we treat our children like non-believers. I believe that we raise our kids to believe in and to worship the God and, and the Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we worship. Uh, you know, if you are my child in my home, you will worship my God. But that doesn't mean I, I'm not to teach my child that they, if they would believe in this God, they must be born again. Uh, I think where the Baptist maybe puts too much of an emphasis on conversion, the Presbyterian puts too little of, a, of an emphasis on conversion, and we've got to find that middle ground. Uh, that said, going back to the sacraments, um, this is just something we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to agree to disagree with with them on. Um, am I going to say they're not covenantal? I think many Baptists, even non-Reformed Baptists, are covenantal simply because they read the Bible. They realize that children of believers uh, are part of the church, um, even if they don't give them that sign of the covenant baptism at the beginning. Uh, so uh, I, I think we can have um, I think we can have agreement on certain levels, uh, even. Uh, even with even with our, our Baptist brethren, even when we're agreeing to disagree, Matt, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think that the confession. Um, that I'm not sure if this is why the the questioner, you know, used the confessions that he did. But Sean and I are uh, Westminster Standards kind of folks who are in the PCA, and the confession is very careful, in particular when it talks about baptism. Um, so I'm looking in Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this would be 28. Um, two. So, what according to the confession, what is a right administration of baptism? 
Uh, the outward element to be used in sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Um, now, the next section does talk about the infants, of, uh, ought, to be, infants ought to be baptized. Um, but from a Presbyterian's perspective, looking at a Baptist, um, there are baptizing in water in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy and the Holy Ghost by a minister lawfully uh, called unto. And while most Presbyterians typically would not pour would pour or sprinkle would not um, immerse, immersion is not prohibited by the confession. So from the Presbyterian's perspective, the way that a Baptist does a baptism, it's a right administration of it. Uh, it's just that they don't they don't administer it to all the people that we would. But when they do administer it, it's what we would call valid. Now that's that's a technical designation. But a Baptist baptism is valid from a Presbyterian's viewpoint because it fits this criteria. Um, we might quibble, and certainly we would quibble with them that they that the um, subjects of baptism we disagree about. But when they administer baptism, they do it rightly. And so we can't say that they're not a true church because they don't administer baptism uh, correctly, uh, or the Lord's Supper, as far as I can tell. Um, certainly there are some Baptists out there that would, that would not have a um, real presence um you know, sort of view. What's the new language that Lig likes that we talked about last time? I can't remember. True fellowship. True. Is that it? I think it's true fellowship, um, which I find helpful. Um, you know, certainly there would be there would be folks out there that wouldn't want to believe that. That would be a much more of a um, uh, memorialist kind of position. It's just mm -hmm. a ceremony commemorating the death of Christ, but not a true fellowship. Um, with Christ, um, you know, so I'm not, I'm not advocating that every single time, but at least in the, in terms of baptism, um, yeah, when they administer baptism, they do it correctly. And I guess I would, what I contrast this with is, um, some of you may know, uh, and this has recently been reprinted actually, of uh, the debate that, that has happened historically among Presbyterians, um, in this country and even in the, in the continent in, in, um, in the English-speaking world, um, about whether Roman Catholic baptism is valid. Um, and recently, Thornwell's uh, work against that was recently reprinted. Um, but there's a different thing going on there in that we wouldn't view um, necessarily, I wouldn't view, I'm not going to speak for Sean, a, a Catholic priest as one who's been a, a minister of the gospel lawfully cared, called thereunto, um, where a Baptist minister, I would say, um, that if he's confessional Baptist, that he is a minister of the gospel, lawfully called thereunto. Uh, and so it's not an invalid baptism that goes on in a Baptist church, in my mind. Or confessionally, I don't think it's an invalid baptism. You know, tagging on to this, I've got another question here from, from uh, oddly enough, another gentleman named Tim. Uh, he says, he asks it this way, he was listening to the same podcast, and he says, it sounds like Presbyterians are just Baptists, who sprinkle water on babies? How how would you respond to that? I think that the difference is um, 
you know, who makes up the church. That would be the crucial difference, I think, between um, uh, a Baptist and a Presbyterian. So I would say there's more than that. Um, that this person is, I think, conceptually, uh, would much would want a much more stronger covenantal view um, than we've got, sort of as a sideswipe, sort of thinking that we're crypto Baptists. Um, whereas I don't view that we are. I think that children, uh, the children of the baptized children of believers, um, by virtue of their being the children of believers who are members in good standing of uh, Presbyterian Church, um, are in covenant with God. God's placed them there. And we signify their standing in the covenant by baptism. Uh, and we take the visible church to be the covenant. Um, and a Baptist wouldn't see it that way. And it's just an area of disagreement between the two of us. They wouldn't see, they would see children outside of the realm um, of that, that visible church because they believe that visible church is only made up um, of professing believers. Um, and so it would be more than we would just be that we would sprinkle water on, on babies. We would actually see the, the, um, those who make up the covenant community differently. That, that being said, you know, I, I look at that statement. It sounds like Presbyterians are just Baptists who sprinkle water on babies. And, and I, um, uh, this, this gentleman, Tim, goes on to say, uh, that he's been accused of, by Anglicans and by Lutherans as a Presbyterian of being a de facto Baptist. And Tim, you know, I've been accused <laughs> of being a closet Baptist. So I, I hear you on that. But at the same time, when somebody says to me, it sounds like Presbyterians are just Baptists who sprinkle water on babies, um, my, I think my initial response is, isn't that wonderful? that these two denominations that preach the gospel are so close. Hmm. Good um, isn't isn't that, that that there's only this this little this little issue of an outward sign, not of an inward uh, we we don't disagree on the inward work of the spirit. Uh, but well, I just, think this is what Piper's been trying to emphasize in the way he's trying to take his church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. in Presbyterians being members in full standing. Um, is a recognition of that that we are that this is a fairly small difference. We're all going to be in heaven, so can we be one now? Yeah. Well, and that's why Tim suggests: could we have a Lutherans and Presbyterians together, or a Anglicans and Presbyterians together podcast? And I would say, you know what? I would love if we if we got some folks that we could get on uh, on the podcast from uh, those denominations. I would love to talk to them about this stuff. Uh, that, that would be fascinating. Um, you know, there's there's another um, podcast. Uh, it doesn't have as many listeners as us, but I know they have a Lutheran on there. Uh, it's called like the White Horse Hotels, something like that. Do you know the <laughs> one I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, they have a Lutheran on regularly, right. and they have a Baptist on, and they have a Presbyterian on. So there, there, there are things that connect us together that are bigger. Um, when we say that a true church is a church that rightly administers the word, sacraments, and prayer, uh, we're not saying that all of the true church is going to do those... Uh, 
word sacraments and church discipline, I'm sorry. I think I've made that mistake earlier in the podcast as well. Um, we're not saying that all of those churches in God's body are going to be doing it identically, but we are identifying them as all of God's body. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, you know, that's that would be the way to err, is err on the side of unity, and uh, but then come back and continue to talk about these areas together. Um, where where we know we're just it, there's never going to be agreement. There's not going to be a point in history where Baptists and Presbyterians are going to agree on the issue of baptism. It's just not going to happen. But in eternity, uh, we're going to all have our heads on straight. And so let's live in light of that. Amen. Um, did you want to say anything more about that, Matt? I don't think so. Um... It would be interesting to to have the the Anglican and the Lutheran, um, you know, and I think that that Whitehorse does a good job with that, um, and you know, I think that the, that just as a preliminary, um, that I, I think that the difference in terms of how we would view what is going on by God in a baptism would vary. Um, in particular, it would vary. I think it would even be different between an Anglican and a Lutheran, um, in that they would see a always conferral of grace in baptism, uh, even of an infant, and we would not have an always conferral of grace uh, in baptism of an infant. I may be wrong in that. But um, well, but I know I have, it's certainly the Lutheran perspective. I, I have the experience of having been baptized as an infant in the Lutheran Church, and uh, I still have my baptismal certificate. And it says on it, it says that this baptism grants this child full salvation. Mm-hmm. But then it says, "Be careful to raise this child up in the way he should go, that he might not depart from that." Right. So is is my <laughs> baptismal certificate saying teaching that I can lose my salvation, or is that Lutheranism trying to struggle with this issue of I'm identifying this child as God's, but I still know they must be converted. Right. So. Right. So yeah. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's similar in the sense, and this may be a mischaracterization. So if we have. Um, Missouri Center friends who listen, yeah. um, forgive my mischaracterization. It's a it's a grace that can be lost, um, and I think that that's why uh, it, within our own Reformed denominations, Presbyterian denominations in America, why um, the Federal Vision debate has been so challenging and sounding Lutheran, because it seems like it's a grace that can be lost. I'm not saying they're duplicate theologies. Just yeah. saying that they sound similar. Yeah. Um, and so, um, the, you know, that's a that's a difficulty. I don't know Anglican theology well enough to, to reflect on it. Yeah, particularly if you get into the realm of Anglo-Catholic, um, you're, there's going to be a lot of differences. Um, but it would be a fascinating discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Tim's got uh, the new Tim now um, has another question on that podcast Baptists and Presbyterians together uh, he asks if we would if we would partake 
if a PCA pastor could partake at a Baptist church, um, that is, would we be willing to partake of the supper in a Zwinglian context uh, when the confessions demand uh, or when the confessions condemn a mere memorial or symbolic view? Um, would we say no? Yeah, in my mind, um, no. Because I, I think that, going back to the comments I made earlier, if I'm in a Baptist church that doesn't have a mere memorial view, that they view it as a means of grace, uh, a true fellowship with Christ, which many, many Reformed Baptist churches would have that position. Um, that's the position, if you were a 1689 London Baptist Confession kind of person, uh, that's the position of their confession, that it's a true fellowship, I'm using... The, this new terminology that, that Ling Duncan is using, because I think it's it's helpful. Real presence doesn't make sense to scientifically oriented Americans because something real is something that's physical, and so we have a hard time with something that's real that's not physical. But um, there are many Baptist churches ready to go in, and they think that it was a true fellowship, and if they believe it's true fellowship, hey, I'm there to have true fellowship, so let's go. Um, and I would not partake in a context where either consubstantiation or transubstantiation was asserted. Um, so uh, this is not a you know um, as broad as the as the day. Um, yeah. I, I couldn't partake, and I wouldn't want to. And, and uh, for example, in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, um, you know, you wouldn't be permitted. It's a it's a fairly close uh, communion um, to membership in in a context that would agree with that theology. Matt, that brings up a good point. We should make a distinction here. Um, so often the way the Lord's Supper is is viewed is as a personal event. Mm-hmm. And and so some people may be hearing this and thinking, well, you know, it, it doesn't matter what they believe there in the church. It's what I believe, and here's bread coming by, and here's the cup coming by, and I know what I believe, I be- <laughs> and so I'm going to take communion right now. Um, and what what you're saying is that there must be because communion is not only an identification of the individual with Christ, but of the individual with the church. You know, the, the bread represents the whole body, the church. And when I break off a piece, I'm saying I am part of that body. And because I'm sitting in a local church, I'm identifying myself with this particular local body. Right. So that's where you're making the distinction is at that point. Absolutely. Because I'm saying when I partake with this group, I'm saying I agree with y'all. Not in everything, you know, I mean, not necessarily in everything, but enough to be, um, you know, that I would be if I'm not a member, I could be a member of this church. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I would be saying if I partake of of uh, the Lord's Supper at a church. That I, I could be part of this church, yes. Well, Absolutely. And, and you are in the in the bigger sense of the term church. Yes. Um, this church and your church. Uh, somebody recently was suggesting, you know, why why do we not pray more as a church for our fellow churches? Hmm. Um, it's something that we really really need to do. Now, I made the comment a second ago. Even though you're saying I agree with this church. Um, there are going to be those people who say, you know, I, uh, I've, I've got some real problems with some of the things some of the other people believe in this church. 
you're not going to find a church where everybody agrees 100%. Um, right. I, I think some, uh, much of the confessional, the, the new, uh, new reformed people coming up, what's this book that just came out based on the article in the, uh, in the New York Times, um, uh, Young, Restless, and Reformed? That was in Christianity Today. Christianity Today. Um, that... It'd be uh, fascinating if it was in the New York Times. Well, you know, there was a, there was a companion article in the New York Times. Oh, really? Okay. About that issue. And I'm, I'm excited about this return to confessionalism, uh, this return to an understanding of what it means to be Reformed, and, and really Christians looking to the roots of their Protestant Christianity. I think that's wonderful. Um, no doubt. But I think there's also a danger that there are folks in there that are going to say, they're going to start going looking for the perfect church. They're going to look for the church that's got all their ducks in a row. And there are a lot of churches that look like that on the outside. Um, but, again, go to, the, go to the letters in the book of Revelation, and you'll see that the church is inherently an impure institution. Its purity comes not from uh, its confessions, not from its uh, individuals. Its purity comes from uh, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus Christ is the purifier of the church. So you can be in a um, fairly messed up church. I'm thinking particularly of uh, the church in Revelation where uh, Jesus says, you know, you do this well, you do this well, you do this well, you do this well. And you, you read it and you say, wow, I'd love to go to that church. But then Jesus says, but you've lost your first love. <laughs> and then you go, oh, wait, I don't want to go to that church. <laughs> um, but the fact is, Jesus is still at that point identifying it as a church. And uh, we need to be willing to go in and be a part of uh, the messiness that is the church. Great, let me make a recommendation here. Uh, Mars Hill Audio Journal. If you don't subscribe to it, you should. Um, great, great uh, selection of conversations uh, Ken Myers has with various uh, authors and poets and artists and theologians and professors. Um, and he gives you a selection of that every month. Uh, but they've, Mars Hill Audio Journal has just released a... Um, uh, a longer, uh, I think it's about an hour, um, one you can buy. I think it's $3 for the, maybe $5 for the MP3. It's an interview between Ken Myers and uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, who, who, most, who most, yes, who most people know uh, for the message, um, the, the Bible translation that uh, isn't really a Bible translation, and I'm not sure even Eugene Peterson would argue that it's supposed to be on the on the level of a Bible translation, but um, one of the things that he says in that towards the end that just was was right on for where the church is at today and for what we're talking about here is he made the comment that so often churches become social clubs of people who think the same, who have the same political views, who have the same uh, views, even sometimes the same, they like the same TV shows. And so those people conglomerate together, and if there's any disagreement in the church, the way that's solved is you have different small groups. And the small groups become, uh, you know, even 
closer enclaves of people who not only watch the same TV shows, but maybe have the same, have struggled with the same diseases and have uh, been through some similar life situations and who maybe uh, are of a similar age. And uh, Peterson's comment at that point is, is just priceless. He says, no, 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 that is not the church. The church is a group of people who have nothing in common. And the only except reason, Christ. except Christ, and you love people, uh, I don't remember if he said this, but this is what I remember thinking, you love people you, that you wouldn't trust with your children. Yep. Absolutely. You love people. The gospel, Tim Keller talks about this. The gospel creates a community that would never naturally happen by itself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's, People that would naturally avoid each other culturally come together because of a shared interest in Christ. And, and I, think it's, I think it's time that the church looked at itself and, and even good, solid, reformed churches look at themselves and say, have we just become this clique of like-minded people, or are we the church? I'm not a prophet, I'm not a revivalist, um, but I think that that is going to be the step uh, toward revival in the church, towards uh, a renewal of our love, of regaining our first love, is when we recognize uh, that the church is an imperfect institution made up of sinners of every stripe, and we are committed to love all those people, uh, just as Christ has loved them. Um, you know, the church is going to be known by its love, and it's really easy to love people who are just like you. It's not easy to love people who are very different from you. Uh, Matt, just one final question we've got here, um, and that is in response to this last uh, podcast we did, the one that we did examining um, examining the efficacy of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, he, he's asking, um, was this really a Federal Vision debate? Um, why did we characterize this as a Federal Vision debate? Uh, do you want to you respond to that? Yeah, I think that the, the reason that we chose to characterize it that way um, was because of the participants, um, and that um, you have in Jeff Myers certainly an apologist for the federal vision. Um, you in Rob uh, Rayburn certainly have someone who's not an antagonist of the federal vision, um, and you've got somebody in Lee Duncan who obviously is an antagonist of the federal vision. Um, and Will Barker, I don't know uh, that he has a public position. Um, uh, on it, and I don't think that I can remember from his particular comments, um, you know, where he might end up on things like that. Although he ably defended, I think, the confessional position. Yeah. So I think we characterized it that way because the reason the people were brought to the table is they represent the diversity within the denomination in terms of the, the thought forms uh, regarding uh, the sacraments, um, and it really. It, it was not the mo- in my opinion, it was not the most useful of dialogues because many of the issues that would be at the greatest difference between the participants didn't really come out necessarily. Uh, each one got to <clears throat> approach the question the way that they wanted to. Um, and so 
you didn't end up with as sharp a debate, I don't think, as uh, you could have had. And I'm not quite sure why why it was done that way. Um, but, you know, you can't, can't go back and ask the folks, you know, why did you choose to do it this way? For example, Jeff Meyer's paper was um, not the sharp kind of attack, um, in particular on the Lord's Supper, um, that others would make who would be uh, uh, who would have sympathies with the Federal Mission camp. He really went for something that was entirely different than that, uh, which is why you found us saying things like, you know, there's much to appreciate here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, that's at least a few thoughts as to why we characterized it that way. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you, Matt. I think you, you given uh, given the anti-Federal Vision vote the year before at the PCA General Assembly, um, and these participants then coming, um, I don't think you can look at those parties involved and not see this as related to the FV. Um, it was a... Uh, was it a political move? Um, was it a move to show that there is unity and thereby uh, maintain unity in the church? Maybe maybe that's somewhere in the background there and why they chose an issue where there would be a great deal of unity. Um, but I See, think... Okay. Go, go ahead. Well, you're saying that it was it had much of an emphasis on the Lord's Supper instead of baptism. Um, well, I mean, they certainly picked an issue that... Uh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. The emphasis was on the Lord's Supper and not on baptism. If it had been on baptism, perhaps it would have. Um, uh, it would have had a. Uh, there would have been a stronger divide uh, between the views. Like mm-hmm. you said, there might have been a sharper debate. Right. So, uh, I think Stephen put it well last month. Um, it, it was. Uh, it was really. Uh, that we'd had an anti-federal vision vote, and this was an attempt to uh, appease those who felt that the vote the year before had not, and the paper that had been produced, had not been as exegetical as it could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, that it had focused on the confession rather than on the scripture. And this was an attempt, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that this was just a first attempt to exegetically examine the scriptures on these issues and begin to do that as a part of um, inter interdenominational conversation. And that's that's really that's what the vote called mm-hmm. us to do is to deal with these things at um, at uh, presbytery levels and at uh, local levels. Well, I think uh, I think that is all the questions that we wanted to cover today. Uh, I hope that this time has been a blessing to you. And, um, uh, Matt, always good chatting with you. Absolutely. And, uh, Glad look, to be forward, part of it. look forward to next time. I'm, I'm sorry our podcasts haven't get, been getting out right on time. We've been having some technical difficulties, and uh, we'll, be, we'll get caught up here in the next few months. And we're, gonna, we're committed to keep bringing you the ordinary, continuing to bring you the Ordinary Means podcast. And may the Lord richly bless you as you seek Him through his ordinary means.